Hey guys, how's it going? It is the return of Scott's podcast of Doom here at blogofdoom.com, and this is something of a pilot episode, I guess we'll say. I'm trying out this new app called Anchor. I heard it advertised on Spotify the other day when I was listening to it, and uh, I was really intrigued by it. It's uh, kind of the cheap and lazy podcast, which I guess is fitting for the blog. And uh, yeah, you just go through, uh, record segments that you want, put them together with some background music, and there's very little work involved and there's no cost involved. And I like all that. So what I'm going to do is go over one of my older pieces that I've written here, because I like having some structure to this. We'll see how it goes. And uh, if you like it, then great. And if not, then we'll throw this into the pile of things that we tried and failed yet again. So today we're going to take a look at four wrestlers who held the championship belts hostage. So coming up next here on the blog of Doom. Hey, we're back. So our first and most famous case that I want to talk about is, of course, Ric Flair and the WCW world title in 1991. So it's kind of a feud we've talked about before. Ric Flair versus Jim Hurd, which is one of the all-time great real-life feuds that unfortunately never had any kind of payoff in the ring. But uh, he was fired in 1991 by Hurd, and it was you know following a lengthy and really petty disagreement that they had going on for months and months. Hurd's idea had been to make Flair into this kind of mid-card character, you know, maybe even a gladiator, who knows? Things, things turn out, right? Um, and also he wanted to cut Flair's salary in half which was not the kind of thing that Rick was going to be into very much. So he kind of let his contract run out, which we're running into today in WWE. So that's kind of where my segue is coming from here for those who want, you know, my mindset going on is all the trouble going on with the ratings and people wanting to leave. And uh, just kind of glad that nobody's holding their belt hostage right now. Flair had been talking kind of about jumping ship to WWF for a while. Uh, leading up until then too so it wasn't really like a, a huge shock that he'd be doing it but of course Jim Hurd didn't think that it was actually a possibility because he doesn't really know anything about wrestling and he didn't really understand flair and usually it wasn't really going to be such a huge issue right contracts run out all the time guys over to move over to other promotions no big deal but the problem was of course that flair was still the world champion at the time because WCW were dumb enough to actually put the title on him early in 1991 with all the contract stuff was going on so in July Flair was finally fired by Jim Hurd for technically missing uh, title defenses. Uh, the whole thing was really just kind of a, like a, a contract renegotiation ploy. And Flair basically called their bluff and actually went to the WWF. He was contractually free to do so, but of course the problem was he had the WCW world title belt with him, the famous big gold belt. So normally what happens is that if the champion is fired, they just return the belt because the belt doesn't belong to you. The belt belongs to the company that you work for. But this is a little bit more complex. So back in 1985, and WCW is still part of the NWA as a member organization, you technically had to put down a $25,000 deposit to be champion just to prevent situations exactly like this from occurring. Because... You know, you didn't want your NWA world champion jumping into the competition, as was threatened by some people a few times, which is a totally different story. Um, so, Flair actually paid for the creation of the famous big gold belt, and it cost about $25,000. So, that was what he considered to be in lieu of actually paying a deposit on the belt to be champion, and it was kind of a, assumed to be a, an agreement between them. And, however, 
Flair's interpretation of that was that he was the actual owner of the championship belt and not WCW. So you can see how there was some legal issues that were going to arise about there. So at SummerSlam, Bobby Heenan showed up on TV, on WWF, carrying around the big gold belt and referring to Flair as the real world's champion, which kind of blew the minds of everybody, such as myself, who was watching at the time and would never expect such a thing happening. And as you can imagine, the lawyers got involved immediately. Mostly it was WCW throwing out accusations of WWF stealing their title. And uh, this was kind of a major embarrassment to WCW and Jim Hurd as it was. And you know, now the, the title belt's showing up on the opposition's TV show, so that's never good. Uh, Flair actually did agree to return the belt later on. Uh, he took $40,000 for it, which is what he considered to be the original cost of the belt, plus interest, because you know, you gotta make a few bucks on the side. And they were able to reach an agreement later in the year. This is where the, uh, the, the famous blurred belt came from later on TV. Uh, they, they started using, a, there was a tag team belt that they were using. Uh, they also had kind of a replacement belt commissioned and there was one famous photo of it that's floating around, but the actual belt never made it onto TV as far as I'm ever aware. Uh, it is actually kind of a strange one because it's one of the few times where the WWF actually backed down in that kind of situation. Normally they would just call out the lawyers and steamroll their opponent in court, but uh, instead they removed all references for the belt and the whole thing was dropped like a rock. So it was kind of kind of interesting that uh, this was one of the few times where, legally speaking, WCW actually beat them in court. Uh, so, But of course, Flair was back in WCW by 93 anyway, and ultimately the whole thing was a pretty silly exercise in the usual wrestling nonsense. So yeah, that was Flair and the WCW world title, and we will be right back. back and our next one we're going to take a look at here is uh, Stan Hansen and the AWA world title in 1986. So we're going to take a look at a couple of instances of Vern Gagne not really being that great at his job as a promoter. Uh, Vern founded the AWA in the 60s and ran it all the way until it completely collapsed in 91 so he had a good run at it but most of his mentality with the wrestling business was kind of stuck in 1963. Uh, most notoriously, he let Hogan leave during the height of Hulkamania in 1983, and by 85, his company was clearly a distant third in America, and NWA and WWF were kind of battling it out. So Vern's idea was trying Rick Martel as AWA champion, kind of capture that younger demographic, maybe even the French-Canadian demographic, I don't know what he was shooting for exactly, but uh, Rick unfortunately proved to be a bit of a flop. So he moved it on to Stan the Larian Hansen the legendary tough guy cowboy character that JBL wishes that he could be. Stan was uh, a name in the America based on a famous feud with Bruno San Martino years ago in the WWF, but at that point he was more closely associated with Japan, specifically working with Baba and All Japan Pro Wrestling, and he was making way more money that way. Um, he did got to work his own schedule, kind of take whatever bookings that he wanted for Baba, and he was highly in demand and didn't have to mess around with promoters and their nonsense in the U.S. anymore. Uh, he was actually making so much more money with Baba that it was kind of pointless to keep him in the U.S. for any amount of time. But Vern tried anyway, because Vern's never been the kind of guy to shy away from failure. So he put the focus of the company on Hanson for a few months, hoping to build up kind of a bigger name for the promotion in Japan. 
district and deal with Baba, whatever. But by uh, 86, Stan had made some pretty big commitments to Baba on All Japan tours, and Vern decided it was time for Stan to return to the U.S. to headline some big shows for him in San Francisco and drop the belt to Nick Bockwinkle, as he believed that they had an agreement to do. Well, Stan wasn't really the kind of guy who was going to do anything that Baba didn't clear first, so he just stayed in Japan and continued defending the belt for All Japan while Vern flipped out and stripped him of it on TV. And just to make sure that Stan knew who the boss was, Vern went on TV and had all the announcers talk about how Stan was scared of the elderly Nick Bockwinkle, who was now champion via forfeit. As the Simpsons would say, the two sleetest words in the English language are default. And then after completely burying his former champion on TV, Vern asked for the AWA world title back, and then he got it. Unfortunately for him, after refusing to return it for a few weeks, Hanson had taken it to his ranch in Texas, ran it over with his truck until it was defaced by tire tracks, and then mailed the belt back to Vern with a very nasty letter. So that was the end of that relationship, as you can imagine. For his part, Stan talked about later how he might have handled that particular situation a little bit badly. Uh, Vern had to have a new belt made, though, and I'm pretty sure he learned his lesson. Oh, sorry, did I say that Vern learned his lesson? Because he didn't learn his lesson at all. So our next case is Jerry Lawler in the AWA World title in 1988. So moving ahead a couple of years from Stan Hansen to 1988, Everyone but the WWF and the NWA were kind of dying a slow, painful death. The territory system was running out of time. And the remaining promoters decided to get together and put on a giant pay-per-view show together and destroy Vince McMahon. It was a great idea. Uh, so it was actually kind of an updated version of a previous inter-promotional group called Pro Wrestling USA. Uh, that one had consisted of the NWA and the AWA getting together and trying to destroy Vince McMahon once and for all. And, of course, that one didn't go very well either. But, again, Vern Gagne has never been one to shy away from failing. So they regrouped, and this time they would get together and put together Super Clash 3. It was going to be on pay-per-view. It was presumably going to sell out arenas in Chicago. It would feature a unification match between the AWA world champion Jerry Lawler and Kerry Von Erich, the world-class heavyweight champion. And they'd have to build a giant vault like Scrooge McDuck to contain all the money to their swim around in afterwards and you know it was going to be great it was very well planned out it was reasonably clever in that jerry lawler had been going around the country and wrestling people as kind of a modern version of a touring champion like a luthez and taking on all comers uh, unfortunately the problem was that most of the comers were gary von eric and uh, he didn't really go anywhere else other than memphis and dallas it seemed like but it was kind of a natural extension of that idea to face a rival world champion now, of course, the problem is that asking two wrestling promoters, like Jerry Jarrett and Vern Gagne, to agree on something, anything, is uh, like a bit of a challenge. Um, and asking multiple ones to all get together and run a wrestling pay-per-view, like, you know, just forget about it. Super Clash was a legendary disaster. It ended up with Lawler supposedly unifying the titles where Vern Gagne unified all the money into his pocket, and he later claimed that he didn't make any money on the show, so... You can make the decision on that one. And the cooperation between the promoters just completely self-destructed. Uh, first one out was World Class Championship Wrestling. They were based out of Texas and, of course, had featured the Von Erichs' stars for years. And the real reason behind the unification was that Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett had actually bought the promotion from Fritz Von Erich and were renaming it to the USWA. 
kind of merging together the Texas and Memphis bases into, again, one bigger promotion. And Lawler just wanted to be the champion of both and make things simpler for everybody. But then the relationship that they had with Vern completely fell apart, and Vern decided that he didn't want the AWA title to be unified any longer and asked for it back. And as you can imagine, when Vern asks for a title back, things don't always go well for him. And Jerry Lawler's response, which I think is quite reasonable, was that he wanted to be paid for the Superclass show that he made evented before he would return the title. To this day, Lawler says he has never received any money from that show. So the AWA never actually got their title back. Uh, Vern once again went on TV and declared that the champion was a coward who was afraid to come to the promotion. Uh, at least this time he wasn't afraid of Nick Bockwinkle because Bockwinkle was retired or in the WWF at that time. I can't remember which it was. But either way, Lawler was stripped of the title and uh, another new belt had to be made. This time, Vern at least was smart enough to put it on someone who would not screw him over, his own son-in-law, Larry Zabisco. Uh, Lawler continued using the old AWA belt as his main one in Memphis until the promotion died in 1996. And just as a fun fact, Larry Zabisco did in fact screw Vern over. He left for the WCW in 1991. Uh, but for those wondering, the AWA was dead anyway by that point. Alright, so let's finish off with kind of the oddest one, which of course again involves Jerry Lawler. Uh, this is about Snowman and the USWA title in 1990. So Lawler had trained this young black kid named Eddie Crawford to be a wrestler in the early 80s. Uh, he changed his name to the Snowman and kind of made his name for himself as a guy who would come into territories like Mid-South with under Bill Watts, make some money as a top guy and then suddenly disappear again after pissing everybody off and burning his bridges. Bill Watts had actually tried to use him to recreate the success of Junkyard Dog, but that failed miserably and Snowman kind of failed, faded into obscurity again. Uh, 1990, he re-emerged in Memphis and started doing radio and uh, newspaper interviews. He was complaining about racism inherent in the Tennessee wrestling scene. I know, this is crazy, but I'm just, I'm just reading. Specifically, he accused Jerry Lawler, his former trainer, of making sure that only white people were ever made the focus of the promotion. Now, one thing you can say about Lawler, he might have been from the South, but he certainly wasn't a racist. However, Snowman continued to attack him and attacking the promotion and the local media. And then, shockingly, because it's wrestling, he showed up on the weekly TV show to challenge Lawler for his title. So Lawler offered him a chance to kind of work his way up from the bottom. And it was a really neat segment. It came across as kind of a, a real thing because it was, you know, very raw and different. It wasn't just the usual bad guy cutting a promo on the good guy stuff. And the storyline was a huge success. Lawler and Snowman tried to work their matches in a, a shoot-style thing. They were doing it, pretending it was like a, a real fight, pretending not to cooperate, and throwing ugly, wild punches at each other. So, of course, Snowman won the world title from Jerry Lawler, and they had a few twists and turns, and he seemed to have found redemptionism for the racism that he had encountered in the territory for all the time. However, even though he was a champion, he was still in the middle of the cards, and Lawler was the top star in the area and given the main events. So Snowman once again became disgruntled, and this time it was for real. And he got into kind of a very heated argument with the ownership about his financial situation and walked out of the title still as the champion in October. Now, given the way things had been built up until then, people thought it was another twist in the story, but then Snowman started showing up on other people's shows, still billing himself as the world champion of Memphis, even after he had been stripped of the title. 
And all that led up to an episode of Memphis TV in October of 1990, where Eddie Marlin went on TV and buried the snowman once and for all, declaring that he had quite possibly pawned the USWA world title for drug money. Um, nobody knows if it's, if it's true. It's never been established conclusively, uh, and nobody ever found the belt or anything like that. Snowman went on the record later and said it was merely Eddie Marlin misunderstanding a threat that Snowman had made to pawn the title if they didn't raise his pay. But, I mean, regardless, nobody ever did actually find the belt again, so it's certainly a possibility. Uh, But one thing is for sure, nobody's ever going to burn their bridges again as effectively as the Snowman did in 1990. sitting through this quick little podcast here that I'm trying today and hopefully everybody in WWE will learn their lesson and nobody's going to walk out with any titles no matter how disgruntled everybody gets at this point. Maybe that's why they took the title off Sasha Banks. Who knows? Maybe that's why the Revival lost the titles as well. I don't know. But uh, I want to thank everybody for listening here on blogofdoom.com. Feel free to provide any feedback, criticisms, making fun of my voice, whatever you want, it's, it's all good. Uh, if you want to hear more of this, then we'll see if we can make this a regular thing. It took me about 10 minutes to do, so it was actually pretty awesome. And uh, be sure to check out the website here every day on blogofdoom.com. Thanks a lot for listening. This is Scott. I'll talk to you later.